humans uh, losing their jobs, quite frankly, because uh, new technology, uh, automation, uh, or simply more efficient. They take those jobs away. And uh, there's talk that maybe people will end up having to uh, be paid some sort of living stipend because uh, there are, you know, not as many jobs or not enough jobs. Is that what you mean by the coming jobless economy? And uh, why has it come to that, uh, you know, that we're headed in that direction? Well, that's a great question. And I would say that um, you're partially hitting what we're talking about in the book, John Nichols and I in the book, People Get Ready. Uh, what we argue is that we are in the midst now or at the beginning stages of a, a revolution, of the computer revolution. Uh, what it's going to do to employment is going to be the next great uh, phenomenon in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And uh, because power of computer and its capacity is growing so dramatically, so radically, uh, it will be able to replace much of human labor. It's replaced some so far, but it's only uh, beginning the process. Now, the reason why this is a big deal is also that capitalism, the way the capitalist economy works in the United States and around worldwide, is having a lot of problems. So you have Richard Wolf on the show. He probably explained a lot of that. Uh, but um, underemployment, unemployment, inequality, poverty are all growing problems. Uh, even before you factor in uh, automation or the computer revolution or artificial intelligence. So we're getting this revolution in, in robotics and in computing that will affect employment into a very weak economy to begin with, where there was you know large amounts of unemployment, underemployment. So it's really a cocktail of a disaster for a viable society uh, to survive, for the economy to survive. And it's going to put extraordinary stress uh, on what remains of our democratic institutions. It's really going to be a battle to see uh, what will conquer in the end, uh, democracy or something else that won't be anywhere near as good. Well, it sounds like we're headed for the perfect storm, uh, so to speak. Um, you know, Richard Wolff, uh, one of his solutions was um, to have more employee-owned businesses. Uh, you know, I'm a fan of Bernie Sanders. You know, he's been talking about progressive ideas, democratic socialism, since it works uh, so well for the Scandinavian countries. Um, you know, do you think if we really employed some of these ideas, it would um, – I don't know, maybe delay the inevitable, or could those be solutions or, uh, you know, part of a, a stew that could sort of keep us afloat? Oh, absolutely. And, in fact, uh, uh, both those things we advocate in the book, and we think they're logical uh, developments that come out of the moment we're in. Uh, and we, we take it – in fact, Bernie Sanders uh, – it plays a large role in our book. John and I, uh, he wrote the introduction to our last book before this. And uh, John and I uh, you know, wrote this book before his presidential campaign really exploded. Uh, we finished it in the summer of 2015. It was published earlier in 20, early 2016. But you'll see, you know, a lot of his vision is, is in the book. Uh, it's a vision we share with him. Uh, at the same time, what we argue in the book that's really important, I think, is that we're not talking about what's happening in 2017, 2018, 2019. We're not, it's not like an effort to be Nostradamus and predict immediately what's happening right away. 
we're laying out sort of criteria for what we see coming down the road. <clears throat> and we can see elements of it now, but it will grow more intense in coming years. And our argument um, is really that uh, we're going to have a – this is an economic crisis, uh, but it's really going to require political solutions. It will be solved by our political institutions addressing the problems and reforming our economy uh, so that it serves people and it adapts to the needs of people, not to the needs of owners. And that's the great problem. And what we argue in the book is that means that the really great political battles coming up will deal with this. And it will be about rejuvenating or extending or building out uh, democratic institutions. So we have a credible, viable democracy, something that we woefully lack. Uh, in the United States today, uh, where m- many of our democratic institutions barely exist, some that once were fairly strong are atrophying or under class, and many just never have been strong enough to begin with. And that the, the route out, the road to a better future, isn't through talking about getting rid of computers, it isn't through bashing technology, uh, and it isn't through like keeping everything the same, but just giving everyone like a stipend so they'll just have enough money so they can get stoned and watch TV and just stay out of the way of everyone who's got a real life. Uh, but instead, the solution is going to be uh, to, to really democratize our society and use that as the path to fundamentally reorganize our society. But would, well, but when you say democratize society, I think most people would uh, say, well, don't we have a democracy now? How would it look different? Um, you know, what would we what would we tweak so that it would look more like what you and John are talking about? And um, people get ready. You know, it, of course, to some extent, this is a semantic uh, discussion. Don't we already have democracy? We have technically on paper a version of uh, a democratic society uh, in our constitution and our laws. We have things that are called elections periodically. Uh, and it, in one blush, you can say, yeah, that's what a democracy is, so we've already got that. But I think if we look at the history and the rich traditions of democracy, going back to the ancient Greeks when it was considered the rule of the many, or as Aristotle put it, the rule of the poor, since they were the vast majority, um, and the notions of democracy as they've evolved, what we have today in the United States is at best something that can be considered a very, very weak democracy, and at worst it's not even that. But I think I think a very weak democracy is what I'm comfortable talking about. And to give it, uh, to put flesh and, and blood and bones on that argument, uh, there have been in the last you know, five years three major studies by leading political scientists in the United States from Berkeley, from Princeton, from Northwestern, from a number of major universities. And they've all, what they've done is they've looked at how decisions are made by the U.S. government and by state and local governments, how they've been made over the last 10, 20, 30 years, and what what patterns you can see. And what all these uh, studies found independently Uh, by our our leading political scientists was that uh, almost all the decisions made by government rarely, if ever, uh, reflect the will, values, interests of the great majority of the people. They're almost entirely made to suit the interests of those uh, who are the wealthiest, most powerful people in society. The great majority of Americans barely have any influence whatsoever. So, and this is like, you know, sort of, then reinforces the idea of why we have such a low voter turnout, because a lot of Americans have internalized the fact that no matter who they elect, nothing really changes. 
So they just tune out the whole system and they, they don't vote, they don't participate, which means the United States has a voter turnout rate um, that is pretty much rock bottom for the entire world. Uh, there are just a handful of countries that do worse than us. And we talk about getting 50% of the vote for our presidential race or 52% of the vote of uh, voting age adults. But in fact, if you look at the whole range of elections we have, the off-year elections, like the 2018 election, or the springtime elections that many cities and communities have their municipal elections in, or the odd-numbered year elections, oftentimes the voter turnout rate plummets down to 10 15% of the population. Uh, and those that do vote have, skew heavily to older, whiter, wealthier people. So we've got a troubled democracy where it isn't really functioning that well, where money dominates uh, where wealth, power, and privilege has inordinate power, and where a vast majority of Americans have figured out they really don't have much of influence over it whatsoever. So let me ask you. I mean, I, I know voter turnout is horrible. Uh, I know in the off years it's worse. Uh, you know, we know there's gerrymandering that affects uh, the situation, too, where um, you know, people don't feel like they're represented. Uh, we know that there's uh, voter suppression uh, by the right. Um, how do we, you know, it feels like it's almost a catch-22. You know, to get people motivated to go out and vote, you know, maybe, I don't know, can you get 70, 80, 90 percent of the people out? Uh, they have to feel like they have a stake in it, but they don't feel like they have a stake in it because, you know, we have things like ALEC, you know, where the corporations are writing the laws and then their puppet politicians just pass them. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering how, uh, uh, you know, it, it's like what do we get going first? You know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? You know, how do we get people motivated to vote to make the change, but um, will will that actually do it? It feels like there needs to be something else besides increasing voter turnout, I would imagine. Well, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. It's a chicken and egg phenomenon. And I would say that uh, because of the the Trump victory, quote-unquote victory, I mean, he didn't really win, but because of the uh, electoral college system that was put in place by the slaveholding class of Virginia in our Constitution so they could get credit for having uh, slaves in their state but not allow slaves to vote, uh, because he won that electoral college system, not the popular vote, it's cast a gloom over the country, at least among people who are not proponents of our right-wing politics. Uh, so I think that we're in the worst of times. And in some respects, I think you can right now, going into the Trump presidency, I think make a pretty strong argument that um, by any standards, he's the, the most uh, unqualified uh, person imaginable to be president, uh, certainly in modern American history, there might have been one or two hacks like uh, I think Chester Arthur or something like that from the 19th century, but it's hard to believe we've had anyone quite as uh, outrageous as Trump. So it gives the sense that we're living in especially dark times, and we may well be. But I think we've got to stand back, though, and, and take a, a closer look or a deeper, longer look at how much this country has changed in the last 10 years, despite the fact, or 20 years or 30 years, the last generation. Now, despite the fact that Trump is you know, going to put in place an effort to roll back virtually every progressive measure of the last 100 years and take this country back to the 19th century, and he's allowing every corrupt uh, you know, hack 
uh, in the country to run the country for him, you know, as long as his ego gets stand. Uh, despite the fact that's taking place, we shouldn't fail to see something you've already referred to a few times on the show, uh, Karen, which is in the last few years we've seen a tremendous upsurge of interest in politics among young people in the United States. Uh, I'm a college professor. I've been teaching for 30 years, and I can tell you what's going on on college campuses, and not just with college kids, but uh, working-class kids who aren't in college or might be in community college, is significantly different than what was going on 10, 20, 30 years ago on these campuses. Uh, this is a much more progressive uh, and engaged uh, generation that we've got out there uh, that understands that we have serious problems that aren't going to be solved magically by, by shopping and by wealthy people making more money. But that's part of the problem, not the solution. And so that explains, to no small extent, the extraordinary uh, performance that Bernie Sanders enjoyed with virtually no support uh, from the news media whatsoever. Uh, yet he became very close to winning the nomination, probably should have won it in a fair fight. And then, he'd be, then we'd be talking about a President Sanders, and the whole tenor of the conversation would be different. But it's not like this country's gone way off the rails right wing and elected by popular acclaim Donald Trump. Quite the contrary. So... We're in a really difficult time because Trump has been elected president. Uh, but I think we've already seen tremendous movement in the last five or ten years that suggests um, this is far from a country that's – this is a country that's getting more engaged with politics, not less engaged. Uh, that a lot of the concerns we have are, are lessening because people are getting more active. And, and, and you know, that's, that's the moment we're in now in my view. Well, and and I have to agree with you. You know, uh, to you know, to the contrary of most of my friends who are wringing their hands and you know, kind of have their panties in a bunch. You know, I've actually been saying, you know, look, you know, Trump could potentially be a gift. You know, we've been talking about a paradigm shift uh, to uh, make the world a better place, create a new normal. Uh, we have to be honest, the establishment de- Democrats have presided over this uh, vast income inequality that we experience. You know, to a certain extent, you know, they have the, uh, the same uh, corporate masters that uh, the Republicans do, thanks to, you know, Citizens United and corporatism and, uh, you know, maybe neoliberalism. Um, I, I can't help but think that, you know, with the arrogance of Trump and uh, with the Republicans having, uh, you know, both houses of Congress and now the White House, they're, they're going to be so tempted to overreach. And when they do, um, they could very well, you know, just destroy themselves. And because, you know, people are so afraid of Trump, more people are getting up off the couch. They're not just playing on Facebook. Uh, they're getting motivated. They're, uh, you know, maybe will be ready uh, for 2018 and 2020. Uh, and, you know, anything they manage to get done, uh, you know, we can just reverse. And I've even read some stuff that, uh, you know, there's no consensus within the Republican Party anyway. They'll probably have so much infighting that, uh, and we have Bernie, who's such a high-profile guy out there. He's already, uh, you know, getting pretty vocal about, um, you know, Trump. Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be an interesting few years, and this may be the beginning of the end of corporate domination and this train we've been on that uh, has left, uh, you know, the 1% with, uh, you know, everything and the 99% with, you know, nothing or not much. 
You know, but I think I, I agree with you, and I, I, I think Karen also that you know the difference between the Republic. There's a lot of difference between the Republicans and the mainstream Democrats uh, in terms of how they view power and the way they engage with each other. Uh, one of the crucial differences is that the Republicans. Uh, understand they're a minority party. They understand if there's an actual election where there's anything close to reasonable voter turnout, they they win. Their ideas can't win. They can't win an election based on gutting Social Security, eliminating public education, uh, lowering taxes even more on billionaires, and scrapping public services and privatizing everything the government does and putting it in private hands. That's a loser. But you know because they know they're not a majority party, and they're desperate for to accomplish their ends, what they're willing to do is when in power, uh, they're basically going to go for the jugular and accomplish whatever they can with all they have power. And, um, you know, we see this with Trump, who lost the popular vote by, I think now it's just about 3 million votes, an extraordinary defeat to the weakest Democratic candidate in memory. Uh, so he, he hardly won an enthusiastic, rousing uh, landslide. He, he lost fairly dramatically. Uh, and we have him acting as if he won the biggest landslide since, you know, uh, FDR in 1936 or Reagan in 1984, that he's just got this massive mandate. Uh, and the reason is they're going to go for the jugular. They're going to try to get everything ran through. They're going to try to privatize Social Security, eliminate public education, uh, junk Medicare, everything they possibly can, because they know it's not popular. They do it while they have power. And can, can, at the same time, they're going to ramp up all their efforts to reduce the possibility of dem- democracy in this country. Voter suppression is Exhibit A. We can expect to see a lot more of that and other mechanisms to really make it very difficult for popular will to be ascendant. Uh, so we're going to have a hard time because they're they're not they don't really care about they're not thinking long term in terms of doing what's nice and will be popular. They're thinking about getting their way and then ramming it down people's throats and keeping it there. Um, but I, I so I, I think we're, we it's the moment we're in is one that's very dangerous because of this because these guys aren't playing uh, by the Marquis of Queensbury's rules. And they don't really care that they are an unpopular party because with the people who bankroll them and their core supporters, they're very popular. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this is a moment in which the American people have to raise up and organize and raise hell. And I think that uh, it's going to be, anyway, we slice it, the next few years are going to be extraordinary. And I think really the next generation is going to be extraordinary. I think it's, it's the generation is going to really pretty much shape um, the sort of future our species has. Um, well, I know journalism is, you know, one of your fortes, and I recall hearing uh, Bernie Sanders uh, tell Rachel Maddow one night that uh, he would like to see, um, you know, a, a cable news program or, you know, cable, cable news uh, network uh, on the left comparable to what, um, you know, the right has with Fox News. Do you see that ever happening? No, uh, I don't see that ever happening. I couldn't imagine how that would possibly happen. And um, I think that I, I don't ever, I would never want to see a cable news network on the left similar to Fox News. I think that would be a nightmare. Because um, Fox News is not a journalism operation, it's like they're conservative journalists. They're just pack propagandists. Uh, 
I mean, that, that's different. There probably could be a conservative news channel uh, with conservative journalists who actually did real journalism. But Fox is completely unprincipled. It has no standards of journalism. It's just basically there to promote its candidates and trash the other side uh, and serve red meat up to its aging constituency. Um, so well, I, I don't I, want I probably a left did a bad job. Yeah, yeah well, no, I agree with you there, and I probably posed the question wrong, and I'm sure that's not what Bernie meant either. No, I, you I, know, know, he I meant, know that's not what Bernie meant. But right. A lot of people I, I mean, posed he, it he, that way, so... That's why I answered you the way I did, not to think that you were wanted that, but a lot of people think in those terms. And I, I don't think we want a political culture with just people like Fox News on various sides. I think MSNBC, to a certain extent, certainly this year has evolved into, uh, and CNN to a slight, certain extent, be sort of um, Fox News for corporate Democrats. They basically assumed the position yeah. of Hillary Clinton in that crowd. Yeah. They, they were very much pro-Hillary. So. You know, we, oh, yeah. <laughs> we see that. I didn't like that either. I thought that was horrible too. I, I think the best journalism being done today to cut the chase. People say, well, what is good stuff? I think the very best journalism is journalism that uh, holds all people in power who want to be in power to the same standard. You don't have a different set of standards for guys they want to support and then from ones they want to oppose. And uh, so the best journalists today are Glenn Greenwald, people at the Intercept who hold the Obama administration to the exact same standard they held the Bush administration to. A war crime is a war crime. It doesn't matter who does it. Uh, it doesn't matter what right. party they're in. It, it's a war crime. And a good journalist should just call it what it is. They shouldn't. Uh, Amy Goodman, same thing. Uh, she has one standard for people in power or people who wanted power. She holds it and applies it the same to both of them. That's what great journalism does. Bad journalism doesn't do that. And that's really that principle alone explains why so much of what is called uh, respectable mainstream journalism in the United States is really pretty bad journalism. Well, you know, it, uh, for listeners who might not have heard the concept, I mean, journalism was supposed to be the fourth estate, right? I mean, the, the, they're supposed to be the protectors of democracy. But since cable news came along and it's not really journalism anymore, um, you know, it feels like the fourth estate is um, – uh, you know, gasping for breath or maybe dead with these few exceptions, like you mentioned. I mean, do you agree, or is it not as bad as I'm portraying it? Well, I, it's, it's a, such a complex issue. It's hard to give a thumbs up or thumbs down to a couple of statements like that because there's so much more involved. I would say that I wouldn't put the problem on cable news uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I think they're the most visible manifestation of how out-of-whack corporate commercial journalism has become and it's devolved. But, I mean, I wouldn't let the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal off the hook uh, for what they're doing or Time Magazine or just a mainstream website, for that matter, Politico. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, the history of journalism in this country is much richer, much more profound uh, than most Americans, including most journalists, have any idea. Uh, the idea of sort of neutral, value-free journalism that we're told is the sort of the democratic way is really only is less than 100 years old. Uh, journalism at the time of the Constitution, of the Revolution, through the 19th century, the Civil War, was stridently partisan. Uh, that's, that's, that's the real root of democratic journalism, having newspapers that are in there in the trenches slugging it out, advocating a position. 
um, and having multiple viewpoints available. Uh, and that system is a very different system than the one we have now. Uh, and it produced at times some of the best journalism in the world, and many other countries still have that sort of more partisan system, which tends to work well when you've got a lot of different viewpoints well represented and when there's um, such a sophisticated level of a political culture that it doesn't degenerate into sort of Fox News-type propaganda but actually has serious debates. Uh, and we once had something much closer to that. Well, the the um, Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, wait, no, I'm sorry, not the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Um, I was just reading an article last night about it has uh, made itself irrelevant that it doesn't have the credibility it used to have. People don't trust it anymore. Um, is it, do you feel like that's uh, an, an honest estimation? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly that that's poll data. And so I think polling data sort of demonstrates that. Uh, so there seems to be evidence in that. And that certainly makes sense to me. And I mean, I think that the one issue about journalism that most people are unaware of, that's probably the most single most important development in the last 25 years, is not the Internet. It's not social media. It's not uh, cable TV news. Uh, it is that the commercial model of journalism in the United States has collapsed, has disintegrated. There are far, far fewer working journalists today covering stuff than there were on a per capita basis 25 years ago or 30 years ago in the United States. I mean, it used to be in a state like Wisconsin where I live, there were you know, a couple dozen full-time reporters covering state capital. Now there's just a couple. Uh, and that's true everywhere in the country. I'm sure that you're in California, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in Sacramento, I bet – in 1980 or something, in 1985, there were like dozens of full-time reporters covering state government. I bet, I bet you could fit all the full-time reporters covering state government in a large phone booth if people remember what those are today, or a small closet. Uh, it's just, you know, there's, and that's true across the board everywhere. There's just not that many journalists left. There's very little actual journalism. And the reason for this is that the commercial model of journalism has died, uh, and that was based on advertising support. And advertisers no longer need to support uh, media, online or offline. So online journalism is doing no better commercially. Uh, and as a result, we don't have much journalism left. What we haven't said on cable news aren't people actually covering stuff and breaking stories, but it's celebrity blowhards giving us their opinions mm -hmm. or spinning us with talking points, but no real news. So for, that's a long way to answer your question, Karen, which is, is it true that people have less um, – uh, trust in or faith in the news media. The New York Times is the most famous news medium, but all news media. And the answer is yes, and for obvious reasons, because they're not getting very much news. They're getting a lot of BS for the most part wherever they turn. And a lot of stuff that used to be covered is no longer covered. And if it is covered, there's not being covered by competitive news media, but rather by one journalist, and there's no one else covering it, so you just better hope they got it right. Well, and, and you just, it's kind of like an echo chamber, too. They all sort of just say the same thing, and you wonder if anybody's really fact checked anything. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, and you have to wonder uh, about the agenda of the person that, uh, uh, you know, put the story out. 
too. Um, I mean, it, it's it's disconcerting. I mean, and now we have, uh, you know, lots of you know people on the left saying, oh, fake news, fake news is what cost Hillary the election. Um, sure, there's a lot of fake news out there, uh, but it feels like in a way that's kind of an excuse. Um, you know, for oh, yeah, let know, me let me for, stop you. Let me stop you at that point. Uh, yeah, the fake news argument that that cost Hillary the election. Um, that doesn't. The evidence for that is not very strong. In fact, I would say it's exceptionally weak. And I would say the whole fake news phenomenon is sort of a bizarre argument because um, if we had a lot of non-fake news. Fake news would have no effect whatsoever. The problem is there's such little journalism that anything that comes along can pass itself off as journalism and take it seriously because there's not much that stands in opposition to it. People say, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Here's the real story. Uh, and you know, fake news is exactly what you get in an environment where you don't have real news. All news is, becomes fake news or dismissed by its opponents as fake news. Uh, and that's the sort of post-journalism world we're living in. And it's a world where someone like Trump actually does prosper, but we shouldn't, it's not like the Democrats uh, or Hillary Clinton were, or some saints who rode in on horseback on, you know, or, or doing the doing it right. Um, you know, they have, they're hardly uh, proponents of, of hard hitting journalism and it deals with themselves. I and mean, one of the revelations of those emails that was so disastrous for the Hillary Clinton campaign, it didn't get much publicity as much as it deserved was how easily the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee were able to spin the Washington Post, Politico, the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, to cover the, their, the Democratic campaign and the, really the whole campaign pretty much the way they wanted it covered. They were either feeding their talking points to the, the handful of media that actually covered the campaign. And one of the reasons they didn't get a lot of coverage when it came out, although they got some, was that it really implicated our news media. Uh, that should have been covering that story, but how easily they right. were basically just, was manipulated to do Hillary's work for her. And it was something anyone who followed Sanders and watched the news media was aware of. This was some news because well, no matter what would happen, it seemed like the coverage was always based on how, how it affected Hillary, Hillary's talking points were the news points. And um, so the, the Clinton campaign had its share of fake news too. So for them to whine about fake news as the cause seems – you know, then they, they've got to look in the mirror and talk about what they did. The Sanders during the primaries at the New York Times, Washington Post, MSNBC, right. and CNN. Yeah, I agree with you. And sort of a two-pronged question from that comment, um, you know, uh, to sort of piggyback on what you said about that whole scenario. I mean, as a Bernie supporter, it looked like, you know, WikiLeaks dumps these emails. And what does the DNC do? It, it you know, they just wanted to start pointing the finger at Russia rather than, you know, uh, anybody looking at the content of what the emails were. It was like, look the other way, look the other way. You know, it's kind of a standing joke with some of my Bernie friends. Are we going to blame everything on Russia now? The Russians made me do it, you know. Um, that and, point, and so uh, that, I'll let me tell you, if I can, that point, that's such an important point you're making that I don't want to get lost in, you know, the next point you're going to make. Uh, the, the, the sort of the way the DNC and Hillary's campaign uh, during the when these revelations came out uh, last year and then after the election, 
uh, been quick to say, well, you know, Russia is responsible for illegally getting up to these, releasing these emails. Um, it was a preposterous claim. I mean, if if someone claimed Russia was responsible for the revelations of Watergate, would that mean Richard Nixon should be allowed to remain president? Uh, the point <laughs> is the, the material is being released. No one ever questions its veracity. Uh, and it was damning to her campaign. Of course, it was embarrassing because she basically rigged the system. Uh, it was completely rigged. So, yeah, your Bernie friends have a very strong point. And the evidence still to this moment is still unclear. I mean, uh, it's a lot of hot air and a lot of smoke, but we're looking for the flame. Uh, there's not a lot of hard evidence that they did, the Russians were responsible for the release of these uh, emails. And to the extent they were, there's no evidence they weren't honest emails, that they weren't accurate. And then the logical question is, and some people have asked this, but no Democrats, is shouldn't journalists be trying to get that information in the first place? Don't the American people have a right to know if one of the candidates is rigging the primaries? Isn't that legitimate information? Why is that a crime that we learn the truth about someone trying to monkey with the electoral process? Right. Well, and, and, and I'll tell you, just from my perspective as a feminist, I mean, I was so tired of taking hits for not being supportive of Hillary and instead supporting Bernie. And it just made me crazy when Hillary supporters could not let themselves go there. At, you know, what you just said, you know, that the primaries were being ribbed. We, you know, we were, we were, you know, couldn't they even see the spin? And it, but it felt like it was willful uh, blindness. You know, I can't imagine that that people, that many people were that ignorant. Yeah, well, it was willful in the sense that it was a clearly double standard. If, it, if uh, Hillary supporters had had that done against them, let's say Joe Biden was the person they were running against, and it came out uh, at the time of the convention that Joe Biden and the Democratic National Committee had worked with the major media uh, to really close down the system to guarantee Joe Biden with the nomination, even though Hillary might have been much more popular. I guarantee you those same people who didn't want to talk about it would have had their heads would have been exploding. Uh, yeah, about how, yeah. how horrible it was that Hillary had it stolen from her. But when, it, when Hillary did it, it's okay, don't cry over spilt milk. That's how it works. Just shut up. And it's the Russians' fault. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so going back to the fake news thing a bit, um, didn't Obama just sign something about a week ago that gives the executive office uh, the ability to um, curtail fake news? Um, I, I know I probably didn't explain it exactly right, but it seemed kind of scary to me because at least the way I understood it, and granted I might not you know, have it exactly right, but it seems like the executive office is going to have the power to decide what fake news is. I wouldn't, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want Obama or Trump with that power. Of course, no one should, and that, that's an outrageous thing. And I, I don't know the details yet. I haven't seen the plan. I know what you're talking about. Uh, and we'll see what Trump does when he uh, comes into power. But I do think the the, la the fake news is a real issue if you want to take it seriously. But then fake news is um, all this stuff like blaming Russia for, for stealing the yeah. election without evidence being presented as if it's the gospel truth on the front page of the Washington Post day after day. Uh, you know, the, the, there is a crisis of journalism in society, and what we have to do is understand so we don't have it. Uh, we don't have the resources for it. We don't have people getting paid to do it. 
Uh, we don't have competing independent newsrooms. We don't have fact checkers. And that's the crisis we have to solve. That's the, until that's solved, all this other stuff will never get fixed. Well, yeah, I mean, because people don't even know who to go to for their news anymore. Uh, I mean, Amy Goodman has been a go-to person for me. You know, I really wonder about the RT, is it RT News? Is that actually Russian television? I mean, people like um, uh, Ed Schultz is on there. They they have Ring of Fire uh, folks on it as well. Uh, but, it, you know, I, I, I don't really know a whole lot about that uh, that, that network. Um, can you enlighten me a bit? I really can't tell you much more than what you know about it. I know that uh, the shows are on the network, and clearly I, I don't think anyone's coming in and telling Ed Schultz what to do or, or Ring and Fire what to do on their shows. Uh, but I don't know the details there. But, I mean, I think the fact that we're talking about fairly obscure station like that and a conversation about the state of American journalism tells us what a woeful state we're in. <laughs> we should we should have yeah, 100 yeah, that, that, media we talked about before we get to ring a fire on RT well, cable channels seen by 12 people in America. Well, yeah, but I mean, if you're a progressive Democrat, you know, unfortunately, that you know, the, you know, uh, that uh, viewpoint uh, has been relegated to. Uh, you know places like that. You know it used to be MSNBC uh, wasn't wasn't just for corporate Democrats. You know, but they've they seem to have uh, gotten more corporatist. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of places it seems. Uh, you know, for a progressive to find, uh, you know, to find their news on uh, on on TV. Well, that number progressives to the left of say the corporate Democratic crowd. Have never really had much of a place in the mainstream media in my lifetime, and I'm 64 years old. So, I, I mean, it's not like there was a golden age 25 years ago by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, I mean, I think we've always been on the margins uh, for the most part. And, you know, we do our best, uh, those of us who are the left of the corporate Democrats, we tend to do our best in moments of social upheaval when social movements create space uh, in the mainstream discourse to get the ideas taken seriously. Uh, and, you know, that, that then there's some new people get in some fresh blood. And we also see conversely, or that conversely might not be the correct word, but we also see in moments when the Republicans are in power, uh, Democrats and MSNBC and CNN, uh, they'll grow a much bigger spine bashing Republicans when, when they're in power, uh, and there will be efforts to unite everyone in opposition. Uh, but then once Democrats get in power, unless something radically changes, it'll go back to being just what we always have. Well, maybe that radical change is the millennials. You know, uh, we we know we're back there supporting Bernie. Uh, you know, because Bernie's, uh, I mean, I, I think I would describe Bernie's platforms as uh, progressive, you know, maybe it's these millennials, if they don't uh, change their stripes, so to speak, uh, you know, maybe as they grow into their power, maybe that will be the shift we'll need to, uh, you know, maybe have some a, a bigger megaphone. Oh, I'm very optimistic at that level. I mean, we've got a lot of stuff we have to do, but this is not a right-wing country, um, and the people who are running the country uh, know that uh, the, you know the Trump crowd. They know that they're. I mean, the people behind the the Alec people 
the reason they're obsessed with like limiting democracy is because they know they can't win a fair fight. Uh, that's why they want to suppress voters and rig the system and let money influence everything and control everything. Uh, I'm optimistic about that. I think that that we've, the general lay of the land is very positive for progressive social change, more so than any other period in my life. Uh, but uh, the problem we face now for us is not to keep be playing the same note, uh, is that the people in power right now are, are going for the jugular and they've got power. And the sort of mainstream Democrats usually grow a little bit of a spine uh, in this situation, but you know, even then, they're nowhere near the spine that's needed. We need, uh, in this sort of moment of genuine crisis, uh, we need uh, an opposition party that's just going to basically draw a line in the sand on things like Social Security and Medicare, unemployment insurance, uh, public education. Uh, these are not, uh, these are not, we're, we're going to go down fighting on these things like you've never seen. And, I, you know, yeah. I, I don't think that's in the, DNA of the uh, corporate Democratic Party. Um, well, well. Speaking of uh, the Democratic Party, you know, Bernie has this new position they've made up for him, some sort of outreach position. Um, do you think that was just to sort of pacify him, or do you think the Democrats realize that uh, they've lost working people? And, uh, you know, there would, I guess, maybe a lot of their, uh, you know, so many people have gone independent because they feel like the Democrats have let them down, too. Do you think that was, uh, uh, you know, a sincere effort to change things or, I don't know, just um, uh, a, a symbolic gesture? Well, I think the Democratic Party is, it's not a monolith. It's a heterogeneous. It has different elements of it. I think there are significant chunks of the Democratic Party. Uh, certainly the farther, closer you get to Hillary Clinton to the top of the party, uh, to the money people behind it, the big donors, I think in that level, they think, hey, Hillary Clinton won this last election. We should be in power. It's just a stupid electoral system and the Russians that kept us out of power. So we just keep doing what we're doing and we'll be back in power and everything will be we'll live happily ever after. There's no change necessary. That's one branch of the party, uh, people in it. But I think there's also a lot of people in the party, and I think this explains why someone like Chuck Schumer uh, is, you know, supporting Keith Ellison to be head of the party, but understands that, you know, they saw what was actually taking place in the campaign trail. Hillary Clinton basically could barely draw a few hundred people to a rally. Uh, Bernie would get 24 hours notice and draw 8,000 people, mostly under the age of 35. They could see where the future of this country is. They could see the intense popularity Bernie had with not just young people, but with working class and poor people that Democrats don't have anymore. And they said, you know, if we don't get this bottle, this, you know, our party's going to be in a lot of trouble. We just can't continue to go down the sort of Pentagon, Wall Street, big ticket money road and think that's going to win us elections or give us any credibility. Uh, so I think it's a split in the party, a battle for the party's soul. Uh, it is in a, a bit of a crisis, and we'll see which side will win. Now, in that context, I think that if um, if the more progressive elements come to play a larger role in the party, I think Bernie will have a huge role, uh, a real role, uh, going around and helping mobilize people on, on the crucial issues to stop Trump and to get people registered and to win elections and to basically throw these people out of office in 2018 and 2020. 
uh, and it will be exciting electoral politics. If the Democratic Party says, no, we'll just keep doing what we've been doing and put the Bernie, Bernie Sanders and his crowd, they'll, they're going to end up voting for us because they don't have any choice anyway, and we'll just start, you know, we'll, we'll just stay rolling, we'll keep doing what we've been doing. Well, I think they're going to be playing with fire because there's a whole generation of people that's not very impressed with what they're doing. And they don't like Republicans, but they're not going to just vote for Democrats as a lesser of two evil. They've got to have something positive to vote for. And the Democrats aren't giving them that now. They're saying we're not Republicans. That's not good enough. Right. Well, and and I think uh, probably, uh, I mean, it was hard to motivate Bernie people to vote for Hillary. Uh, You know, I think it would be hard to motivate uh, Bernie people to vote for anyone that is going to be uh, a corporatist establishment type Democrat. So if they didn't, if they didn't see that they couldn't win with Hillary, it's kind of crazy to think that they can, um, you know, that that they will win in the future without adopting, uh, you know, the the you know progressive ideas. Well, yes, I, and I think there's some who understand that you know that this is the future of the party. I mean that. Let's put it. Let's turn it around. Let's say, for example, just for sake of discussion, that Bernie had won the nomination, and Bernie Sanders was not a uh, liberal, but he's more conservative than Hillary, and that Bernie had, uh, uh, or whatever his politics were. Let's say Bernie's politics are the same, and but that Hillary Clinton had, an, and unlike Bernie. Hillary Clinton actually drawn like millions of young people out. She was routinely having rallies with ten or twenty thousand people all over the country. That there was massive enthusiasm for grassroots support and millions of people volunteering uh, endlessly to work for her. And let's say Bernie Sanders just had corporate donors and basically just old people in their sixties and seventies, burnt out hippies supporting him. Uh, we'd be hearing endlessly today about the future of the party was Hillary Clinton. Uh, so right. there's some people who get it that when Bernie's getting all the people out for him, and Hillary's having trouble drawing 200 people or 300 people, and she barely campaigned because uh, yeah. she couldn't get a crowd out. That uh, you know, the future is not with um, Hillary Clinton and her small fundraising event she was doing all over the country. Right, right. So, um, why do you think Bernie fought Hillary with one hand tied behind his back? and didn't contest the convention because it seemed like he really could have put some whoop ass on her and he really chose not to. Um, I think precisely because he didn't want Trump to get elected president. I think Bernie has been in the house and the Senate now for what, uh, 26 years. And he's been fighting these people, uh, the Republicans and their agenda for 26 years. And, as much of a critique he had of corporate Democrats and doesn't like corporate Democrats and oppose them, um, he knows what pure evil comes from these Republicans. And he was he would he made it clear from the beginning he would never do anything that would make it easier for uh, the far right to assume total power of the United States government under any circumstances. And I think he was true to that all along. Okay, and uh, I, and I have to ask: Do you think uh, do you think he would have beat Trump? Um, you know, no one will ever know, but um, I think the evidence, such as we have it, is pretty clear. He would have he would have clobbered him. Uh, wouldn't even be yeah. close. In fact, I go so far to say that if, if Hillary Clinton had not been so arrogant and stupid, to be blunt, 
Uh, and you know, she picked probably the worst person on earth as her vice president. Someone no one heard of is even more conservative than she is. Who's even a bigger fundraiser guy from Wall Street. And uh, she picked this guy to be in the ticket, who's a total nothing. It got her no votes. The only state he helped win was a state she would win anyway, Virginia. Um, so if she had just put, you know, Keith Ellison or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren on the ticket, I think she would have won. That would have been enough to get all those voters out and enthusiastic. Uh, but by putting so do you think it was arrogance? I, I mean, why did she pick him? I mean, what do you think the logic was? She's not a stupid woman. I, no, she's not stupid, but I think it's her arrogance. So she thought that she would get, she would win the election uh, without having to do that. There was no reason for her to put a Bernie on or a Liz Warren or to throw a bone to that part of the party or those voters. They, they'd have no choice. They weren't going to vote for Trump, so they clearly would vote for her. And she just assumed arrogantly that that type of politics would work again. And in fairness to her, she got three million more votes. I mean, let's not forget that. She she had a, much, a pretty big margin of victory. It's just the way the electoral college system works. She didn't get them in the right place. Uh, but I think if she had been, in retrospect, if she'd been, I think she probably wishes she had put someone like Bernie or Liz Warren on the ticket, someone identified with those progressive politics, because that would have motivated millions of people who probably didn't vote for Trump. They might not have voted, but I think that what really killed Hillary wasn't that they didn't vote or that they voted for Trump, but the fact was she had millions of people, mostly under the age of 35, who would have been working on weekends, who would have been pounding doorbells if Bernie had been on the ticket, even as vice president or Liz Warren. And she didn't get any of that. Once once she basically puts Kane on the ticket and at the same time uh, Bernie is basically – it comes out that she's rigged the system. Uh, so Bernie didn't have a fair shot at getting the nomination. Uh, and that comes out. Then to people who are supporters of Bernie, they're just like, okay, I'm not voting for Trump, and I'll probably vote for Hillary. It's a close race. But I'm sure the hell not going to work hard for this woman. I mean, why should I? Mm-hmm. After this yeah. is, that would be some pretty salt in my wounds, uh, you know, until she right. apologizes, which, of course, she never really did. Yeah, well, exactly, and it felt more like she went courting uh, moderate Republicans than she did uh, Bernie's camp, too. You know, oh, and that, that was really from the, from the beginning. I mean, she didn't anticipate Bernie was going to uh, do as well as he did. No, very few people did, but she certainly didn't. And she was planning to run her entire race is trying to appeal to moderate Republicans right from the beginning not after the convention. And Bernie forced her to at least pay lip service to the left and claim she's a progressive for a few months because, uh, you know, because he was, would beat her otherwise. Uh, but then as soon as he got out of the way, she could revert back to her, let's go get those uh, suburban upper middle class Republican women uh, outside of Philadelphia and Cleveland. And they, of course, won't vote for that lunatic Trump. They'll, they'll want to vote for me. Uh, and she put her eggs in that basket, and unfortunately that basket didn't work. Right, right. You, you think there's anything to um, the rumors out there about, uh, you know, Bernie was threatened to back down and play nice and, you know, that he wouldn't have any power in Congress or somehow he would be he would be punished if he uh, fought her too hard? Um, you know, I... I think Bernie did it for the reasons I said. I think he genuinely understands uh, that bad people running our country's government can do really awful things to people. And that's the situation we're in now. He would have done nothing to allow Trump 
to win the, the White House. I think Bernie might have campaigned more for Hillary than Hillary campaigned for herself in the fall. I mean, he, he was actually uh, doing yeoman's work out there trying to help her uh, in the fall because I think he in his, he genuinely takes that seriously. That wasn't lip service. He he under, he really didn't want Trump to get elected. Uh, and yeah. he had to do nothing to help that. And that's why I think he didn't push the issue of the stolen nomination or Hillary's chicanery on uh, the DNC's chicanery during the primary process, because at that point it was over and he didn't want to do anything that would help Trump. And I think that's one of the reasons he just laid off that issue. And it didn't get the traction it would have if he had done what I think a lot of people said, wish he'd raised some hell about it so there'd be justice. But he didn't want to help Trump. And as for him being pushed around or warned that he'd lose his power, I mean, I don't think he has to be told that. He knows how, how Washington works. He's, a, he's one of the smartest political operatives there is. Uh, but, I, and, but I don't think he would have uh, – you know, I think his concern was what I said. It was right-wing dominance yeah. of three branches of government. was something that's completely unacceptable to him. Right. So do you think we need to get rid of the Electoral College and the superdelegates? Oh, I don't even think that's a debate. Uh, and I think everything you need to know about how late the Electoral College is comes with the Republican Party. Both in 2000 and this last election, the Republican Party had elaborate plans before the election to try to discredit the Electoral College if it went the other way. If they won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College, they were actually had big plans to go in and have public campaigns to force electors to vote for the candidate who got the most votes and really be anti-electoral college. And then as soon as they win by that, they just rip those up, and suddenly the biggest proponents of the electoral college is representing the sanctity of God's constitution. It, I, the history of the electoral college is really interesting. When you hear people defend it, they say it was put in there to protect small states so they wouldn't uh, get overrun by the most populous states. It's complete monkey business. It's garbage. It's not the reason why at all. The reason we have the Electoral College is uh, the primary reason. Instead of having a popular vote, which is what the assumption was you'd do originally, you just have a popular vote. Then the battle is who's allowed to vote. But why we have the Electoral College was that the slave uh, owners, the plantation owners in Virginia especially, which was the most populous state for slaves uh, at the time, said we want to get credit uh, for our slaves, our slave population, but we don't want to let them vote. So we'll do the Electoral College, which basically includes slaves in the population, uh, but only white men with property will be allowed to vote. Uh, so we get the best of both worlds. We keep the power, but we get the credit for our slaves in our population base, so we have more control over the national government. And that's why we created the Electoral College. Now, the big debate then was, well, if slaves can't vote, why should they be counted? So they, that's where they had the famous three-fifths of a person compromise, where slaves counted as three-fifths of a person. Hmm. So um, I, 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 that, it kind of boggles the mind, honestly. Um, but, you it, know, it's, I, the it's irony – well, and the irony wasn't lost on me that uh, the superdelegates screwed over Bernie, but yet, you know, and, and I remember the Hillary people said, oh, well, that's the system, get over it, you know, don't cry over spilled milk. But then the Electoral College screws Hillary, and, of course, then every, you know, all the Hillary supporters, uh, you know, wanted to cry. You know, I don't know. That, to me, there was just some irony in there that the, uh, you know, that, that they didn't care about the superdelegates, you know, when and it uh, went in her favor, but yet uh, when the Electoral College uh, bites her in the butt, 
you know, that then, you know, then the system is a terrible thing, if you know what I mean. Because here in California, I mean, the night before the election, uh, when we knew that if Bernie, uh, you know, had, had taken California, he would have got, you know, had, would have gone ahead uh, in delegates, uh, the AP calls the race the night before. I mean, I don't uh, – was, was that was that just news here in California, or was that news all around the country? You know, I was uh, in Europe then. I followed it as closely as I could from Europe, but I was, you know, limited in sort of my media exposure to uh, websites. So I don't recall that. But I, what I do recall is that uh, it was presented as this massive landslide victory for Hillary. Uh, in California, and if I'm not mistaken, when the final votes finally were counted, uh, Bernie got 48% of the vote. So it was anything but a landslide. Well, and and like I said, the night before the California election, the AP called it for Hillary. So how many people didn't even maybe go out to vote the next day? You know, there were so many ballots that hadn't even been counted, you know, rooms and rooms of uh, mail-in ballots. You know, I I, I don't know. I I just kind I could be wrong about this because I was so demoralized. I stopped following the story, but I don't know if they ever finished counting the votes in California. But well, anyway. I think they, I think they did actually, but it, they did count them to my knowledge, and that's why Bernie actually came pretty close to winning when they finally did count them all. Yeah, I think he's up yeah. over forty-eight percent. It's sort of like with Hillary's vote total keeps going up uh, since the election. They start out in the West Coast; those your states are keep counting those ballots. Yeah. Well, I know we're getting close to the end uh, here, Bob, and just uh, just to shift gears a tiny little bit, two final important questions. Um, I wonder what you think about WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Is uh, he a good guy? They can be trusted. Uh, my thought, uh, my, my sense of it is I don't think most uh, the things he has um, uh, you know, has has brought to the public. Uh, I don't think any of it's been been lies. And then finally, uh, Edward Snowden, uh, hero or traitor, and should Obama have pardoned him? Uh, well, I don't know much about Julian Assange as a person. You know, uh, his personal nature, you what know, sort of character he has, uh, and I can't judge him, and I wouldn't try. Uh, but I do know that for everything I've seen, I agree with you. WikiLeaks, you know, there's no evidence that they doctor stuff. There's no evidence that they're distorting anything. Uh, they tend to be very careful with what they release. Um, uh, and they, you know, so I, I think we're lucky to have them. Uh, fortunately, we do. People in power hate WikiLeaks. That's, to me, is their strongest uh, recommendation. Uh, as for Edward Snowden, he's absolutely a national hero. Should, his birthday should be a holiday. Uh, shame on President Obama for not pardoning him. Uh, he, he richly deserves it. We should be. He should be. If there were genuine libertarians and conservatives in this country, uh, they would be championing his cause. Not to mention progressives. Okay. Well, um, before I let you go, uh, is there anything you might like to say that I didn't think to ask you? <laughs> Not really. I mean, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope we can do it again in the future. 
Well, great, great. I've I've enjoyed it myself too, and uh, I'm going to have to uh, look for some of those 23 books you've authored, and uh, uh, you know what a what an accomplishment. And uh, just to repeat your newest book uh, for my listeners, it's uh, People Get Ready: The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless uh, Democracy. So, Robert Chesney, thank you so much for being with me tonight. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, good night. Well, um, I hope you enjoyed that uh, as much as I did. I'm so glad we finally got uh, uh, Robert here on the show. Um, and I uh, fully recommend uh, his book, uh, Get the Get Ready Now. And uh, also, uh, you know, maybe go look for him on Amazon and uh, see what other good stuff uh, he's got out there. And uh, as we come to a close for tonight's show, I have to make a shameless plug uh, for my own uh, book, uh, Anthology Out Just Now, uh, which I'm very happy to say includes wonderful essays from leaders in our community like Ann Baring, uh, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, and many other important visionaries who explain in relevant terms why goddess ideals or liberation theology. And that means... Um, the Spirituality That Sets You Free. Uh, the title of the anthology is uh, Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. And someone asked me, well, what does that mean, uh, Goddess 2.0? Um, they didn't really understand that. And, you know, I kind of think of it as slang for, uh, it's kind of like the next level. You know, uh, it's, uh, you know, raising the bar. It's uh, beyond uh, Goddess 101. Um, and you can get a signed copy from me uh, directly for uh, $16. I think that's actually with shipping and handling, and that's actually cheaper than uh, getting it directly uh, from Amazon. And you can do that by going to my website, KarenTate.com. Uh, when you get there, go to the Goddess Store page, and uh, you'll be uh, one of the first uh, to have your own copy and to discover how Goddess Ideals go way beyond what color candle to use on your altar. Uh, goddess Ideals are about social justice and the common good. Uh, and, you might, and you might like to know, as I mentioned earlier, the book is dedicated to Rianne Eisler and Bernie and Jane Sanders. Uh, and as you've probably probably heard me say, no doubt, if you're a regular listener, uh, Bernie's ideals or goddess ideals. So let's uh, reconcile our spirituality and our politics. I hope you'll pick up a copy. Uh, and if you're in the Southern California area, uh, I hope you'll save the date uh, for my book, lunch a book launch party on February 18th at the Museum of Woman, Goddess Temple of uh, Orange County in Irvine. Also a bit sooner on the horizon, I'll be giving a talk at the 13th Annual Pagan Conference at Claremont University city in Claremont, California, the last weekend in January. My paper is titled uh, Spiritual Courage, Partnership, and Caring Economics, Antidotes to Domination. Yep, uh, Antidotes to Domination. So uh, hang on just a minute uh, for a word from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. 
As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot the film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only 20 bucks at the website dancingwithgaia.com, dancingwithgaia.com. And finally, before I say goodnight, I want to remind you to click the follow button so you get notice of those um, re, uh, of, of those rebroadcasts uh, or new shows uh, moving forward. And as a reminder uh, about uh, how important it is to understand and practice uh, the concept, uh, what we nourish thrives and what we neglect withers, uh, that goes for your life in all its phases. Uh, feed what nourishes you in this and if this show nourishes you, gives you inspiration or insight, uh, please feed it so it grows and thrives. Uh, don't be one of these people that only takes, you know, only goes to the ATM machine, uh, whether it's um, uh, on the corner or even at your altar. You can't just go and take. You do have to uh, give back. Uh, don't be one of these people who treat generosity from others uh, like an ATN machine and only receives. Uh, that said, um, say a prayer of thanks to Goddess before you go to sleep tonight, uh, thanking her for the grace she's bestowed upon you in this life, or call a friend uh, or loved one and say thank you for what they've given you. Gratitude and appreciation are the gas in the tank of your life. It keeps you going. Fill it and you'll speed down the road. Only take and never give back and you'll find your life sputtering down the road or broken down and crashed in a ditch. So a reminder of uh, the show's mottos, Um, uh, one attributed to Gandhi, he said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And um, the other from the 19th century German philosopher, author Schoenhauer, who said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it is accepted for being self-evident. Well, dear listeners, that about does it for me tonight. Uh, I'll be back with you uh, on the 11th uh, with Miriam Robbins Dexter. On the 18th, Jack Dempsey will be back with me. And on the 25th, uh, Candace Cant. So we have some great shows uh, uh, to start off the new year. Uh, so I'm um, going to go back to uh, Emma's revolution here and uh, let them uh, close out the show with their uh, with their song, Peace, Salome, Shalom. Shalom. 
uh, Peace, Salome, Shalom by Emma's Revolution. Obviously, that is peace in several different languages. No matter how you say it, we sure need it. Good night, dear listeners. Thank you for being the guests in my tank, and Happy New Year. Peace, Salome, Shalom.